Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Although incorrectly attributed to Churchill, most of you have heard the quote that if you're not a liberal when you're 25, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 35, you have no brain. Well, it's a little silly since we don't really think that Barack Obama, Paul Krugman, Martin Luther King, and FDR weren't smarter than George W. Bush, Rush Limbaugh, and Joe McCarthy. However, it does go to the core of that fact that personal beliefs can change as we grow, as we evolve, and as context changes. And while people like Jonathan Haidt have made the case that political belief is in some ways tied to evolutionary psychology and biology, we know from the lives of prominent Americans who have changed their beliefs that this has its limits. My guest today, writer and filmmaker Daniel Oppenheimer, looks at the lives of six prominent figures, not just whose politics have changed, but whose ideas and intellectual core beliefs have shifted over time from left to right. Daniel Oppenheimer is a writer and filmmaker whose articles and videos have been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and Tablet Magazine. He has an MFA in nonfiction writing from Columbia and is the Director of Strategic Communications at the University of Texas, Austin. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Oppenheimer here to talk about his book, Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm excited. It's good to have you here. As we look at how political beliefs change, and, and we'll talk, obviously, about the six prominent people that, that you talk about in this in Exit Right, to what extent does it have less to do with with political ideology and intellectual ferment and as much to do with the tenor and temper of the times that in some ways context is everything well i think in the most basic way uh, it has an enormous to do with what you're saying and i sometimes i do this thought experiment where i think about you know what if just to illustrate it in a dramatic way, you know, what if we had been born um, Gentiles in Nazi Germany? And what would the odds be that we would be complicit with the Nazis? Well, they'd be very good. Or what if we were born Jews in Nazi Germany? You know, what What are the odds that we would be hostile to the Nazi regime? Well, again, the odds are very good. And, and, and you know, Nazi analogies are dangerous, but it, but it illustrates what I think is kind of one of the fundamental arguments I'm trying to make in the book, which is our, our political beliefs are enormously, you know, inextricably contingent on on when we were born, where we were born, um, on our biology, on who our parents are, and, and what beliefs they handed down to us, and then, and, then, and then in the sort of specific environments in which we find ourselves. I don't think that's not to dismiss the role of reason and intellect and experience and maturity in what our beliefs become, but it's to say that the grounds of them are, are all of these other things, and, and the most we can do with our reason and intellect and maturity is kind of is try, is sophisticated and maybe refine um, what we're what we're given. There's also the degree to which what constitutes right left changes. Certainly, as we look at conservatism, certainly the conservatism of Edmund Burke is very different from the conservatism of Donald Trump or Ted Cruz. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right, and, and and you know that's one of the things that the sort of the that issue that I try and tease out in the book. You think of somebody like Ronald Reagan, who's one of the people who I who I profile in the book, and what he always said, and it's not true, but it still speaks to the point. What he always said is, "I never left the Democrats; um, they left me." Right. So he was a he was a New Deal Democrat, kind of for the first half of his life, and then obviously became the sort of prominent, sort of fairly 
serious conservative figure that that he became um i don't think it's true that he didn't change i think he changed pretty dramatically but it's also true that what it meant to be a democrat changed over time and, and uh, you know one of the things that i think changed for him that did genuinely change in a sense is he always was very attached to a kind of sunny optimistic and, and patriotic vision of america and in the 1930s and during the period that franklin roosevelt was president Roosevelt was kind of the embodier and the articulator, I think, of that vision of America. Um, and, and, and later on, you know, it's not that Democrats ceased to be patriotic or optimistic, but for Reagan, for whom it was a kind of deeply emotional thing, nobody, ever, nobody on that side of the fence ever embodied his vision of America in the way that Roosevelt did. So that did change, even though I wouldn't say the content of the of Democratic Party politics changed in the way that Reagan alleged. Another layer to this is the way in which other people influence us. I mean, Reagan may be influenced by an executive at General Electric in, in changing his views, but a lot of people are influenced by people close to them, whether it's family, whether it's husbands, wives, etc. That has a powerful impact. I mean, as you tell the story, even with Norman Podoritz and, and, and being annoyed at Norman Mailer, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has an incredibly powerful impact. And, and, and probably, you know, when you think about, I always think about just, you know, kids from conservative homes going off to college at some, you know, artsy-fartsy liberal arts college, like the kind that, that I went to and you probably went to, mm-hmm. and the influence that that, commu- that that environment has on them. But yeah, I mean, Pedhoritz, he was he's a good example of that in a number of ways. I mean, he came of age intellectually, um, he went to Columbia University and was really sort of profoundly influenced by the community of, of New York intellectuals, liberal New York intellectuals in the mid-century, which itself was very different from the just kind of immigrant home that he came from, not particularly intellectual. So for his first experience was being influenced by these sort of anti-communist, liberal and left-wing intellectuals in New York, many of whom were Jewish. Um, and then And then he had a profound falling out with some of them when they didn't like this book that he wrote in, in and published in 1967, um, including in particular Norman Mailer, who had told him that he was going to write a positive review of the book that was going to redeem him against all of these critics, and then when it finally came out, was fairly critical. Um, and so partially his conservatism came in reaction to what he perceived as the rejection of this community of, of liberal and left-wing intellectuals. At the same time, he was also part of a movement of some of the people in that group to the right, and that, that movement that we now call neoconservatism. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny thinking about him, like, would he have gone to the right if not for these nasty reviews of this book and the depression that followed and the ways that he interpreted that rejection politically? Like, hard to say. He wouldn't have gone right in the same way, but he may also have been part of this larger trend in the community of which he was a part of, you know, these sort of New York Jewish intellectuals who moved to the right in reaction to some of the what they perceived as excesses of the 1960s. I mean, to that extent, even more than, than biology, geography becomes destiny and, and, and wanting to be part of the in crowd in some respects. Oh, yeah. yeah. But Orr is a good example of that. I mean, yeah, he absolutely. He, the book that he wrote that got so slammed was, was his attempt, it's kind of a memoir, and his attempt to wrestle with his deep desire to be part of the in crowd, to be successful, to strive, to be uh, assessed as important and brilliant by by his colleagues, you know, and you or you think about somebody like 
um, David Horowitz, who I, I don't think was driven by the same status anxiety that Pat Horowitz was, but but was raised in a Communist Party family uh, in the 1940s and 50s, and then spent a lot of his adult life sort of trying to find the left wing movement that would that would be the best vehicle for. Uh, for some kind of revolution or redemption of the American project. And, and you know, he, he was affiliated with the New Left. And then, you know, later, um, after sort of those hopes were dashed in the, in the early 1970s, he became affiliated with the Black Panthers in Oakland. They became friends with Huey Newton. And that's what led to his, his sort of traumatic break from the left because the Panthers um, killed, or, or we assume killed, there's no been, not been absolute right. evidence, a friend of his. And it was a friend of his whom he'd recommended to them for a job at the Panther headquarters in Oakland. And her death, and then uh, just, he kind of destroyed him for a while. He felt profoundly guilty for recommending her. Um, he felt profoundly angry at his friends on the left, both for not warning him, he felt, about how dangerous the Panthers had become at that point. And then also after this this woman was killed, he went around to all his friends on the left and uh, said, you know, look at what the Panthers did. They're, they're so terrible. And they kind of didn't want to hear it for a variety of reasons. So, so yeah, I mean, that, that, that search for either being part of the in crowd or being part of a community or a movement that will sort of fulfill your political goals, but also obviously, you know, in very intimate ways, your, your social goals um, is, is absolutely part of the story. The other part of it is, is the fervor that so many of these people had as they changed political positions. For, for these various reasons. And in many ways, it reminds me on the most simplistic level. We all know the stories of, of the former smokers that become non-smokers, and right. then they become crazy about it. And in many ways, these characters, as they've changed political positions, as they've gone really at risk in some cases with respect to the people around them to take a different position, have become even more fervent. Yeah, right. I mean, like the zeal of the convert. Um, yeah, I mean, and so, so to take Horowitz, for example, I mean, he was certainly hardcore on the left, but the sort of anger um, that he has had on the right over the last few decades is kind of far in excess of what, what he had on the left. And yet it is that sense of sort of both, I think it's anger at being duped. It's It's a feeling of kind of the scales falling away and, and seeing the sort of horrible truth about the, the party or the movement that one was uh, connected to and then this, this, this desire to, to kind of uh, redeem oneself, to destroy the movement. Um, yeah, these are not people, and I, I don't think they're necessarily characteristic in a broad way of people who shift, who shift belief, you know, a lot of us shift belief, right? A lot of us change over time. And the more typical way is more is, is probably kind of, you know, I think the Reagan path, as I sort of talk about in the book, where it really took him a good 10 or 15 years to sort of really fully change parties. And even at the end of it, he had sort of convinced himself that he hadn't changed his politics. I think that's more typical of most of us. The people I'm writing about are these, you know, by and large are these real convert types. And they're, they're intellectuals. They're political intellectuals who live their politics and feel the need to articulate their politics and have a coherent philosophy to a degree that most of us don't. Um, and, and when that falls apart, they seem to feel a need to replace it with something, you know, equally coherent and, and sometimes even even fiercer in its way. Mm -hmm. 
Talk a little bit about Hitchens because his case is, I, I, w- I would argue, somewhat unique because of the external events that really drove his his intellectual shift. Yeah. So, so Christopher Hitchens was this was this guy. Grew up in England. Um, came from a mili- kind of middle class, lower middle class military family. Um, went off to, to private school and then to. Um, to Cambridge, and 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 while there, kind of, you know, during that process, became a socialist, became a, a real Marxist socialist believer, activist, and writer, um, and was that for many years. Came over to the states, I think, in 1980, uh, became affiliated with the Nation, you know, one of the kind of oldest and, and most prominent left wing magazines in America. And I think what happened with him. It was a few things. Um, he had this long-standing hostility to to religion, and in particular to fundamentalist religion. And in uh, you know, starting kind of in the 1990s, his friend Salman Rushdie had this fatwa issued against him by the Ayatollah of Iran. Um, he started becoming more more tuned in to the sort of Islamic, the sort of fundamentalist Islamic movements. So that started pushing him over time towards more of, a, of an embrace or an interest in the use of, of military power, and particularly American military power, against, against those movements. And so he actually sort of, in a, in a complicated way, supported the intervention in, in, in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And then after 9-11, I mean, that was the real decisive moment mm-hmm. for him. He, he saw he saw it as an attack of from the sort of fundamentalist religious hordes against what was what was best in Western civilization, and and he I would not say he went all the way over to the right, but he decisively broke with his left wing family, which he felt like just didn't see didn't see the stakes and didn't have the moral clarity to recognize uh, what he did, which was that this was a battle between barbarism and civilization. One of the things that Hitchens arguably struggled with is something you touched on before, which was trying to create intellectual consistency within his position because he became this neoconservative. He became extremely um, zealous in, in terms of foreign policy. But he, as you say, he never did really break with some of his friends on the left in some other areas. Yeah, and he was kind of, I mean, he was one of, and this is probably a lot of us, which is, I think his brain was not actually um, a, a kind of systematically oriented brain. I think it was more idiosyncratic than that. But he felt the need, like a lot of us intellectuals do, to try and achieve coherence and consistency. And so a lot of what you see, I think, in the last five or ten years of his life was was him trying with his fairly powerful brain to do something that he wasn't suited to do and that and that and that frankly like he couldn't do because because the facts didn't allow for for coherence between his this sort of history of left-wing belief which he didn't totally reject and a continued support and kind of doubling down on these on these wars that just that just didn't make sense in that frame, and I, I think there was a real decline in his writing in the last five or ten years as a result of that, and maybe also as a result, you know, frankly, of, of just too many decades of, of drinking and smoking <laughs> and, and the toll that that took on his 
his health and, and, and probably his mental powers. The other part of it is that one could argue, I mean, and it's how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of <laughs> argument, but that had he lived a little bit longer, it might have been easier to square that circle given where conservatism has been going and his trying to hang on to classic sort of Burkean conservatism. And he might have been able to square that circle given enough time. He might have, except with, you know, it's interesting to think about, um, he certainly could have if he'd been open to sort of wrestling with the, the mistakes that he made. I think he was going in the other direction. It's, it's, it's interesting to compare him from that perspective with, with some of the, the conservative intellectuals I think have moved left in the last five or ten years. Because I think what's interesting is, you know, I'm writing about left to right people, probably the most recent you know, important trend sort of intellectually in this country has been in the other direction. And I'm thinking of people like Andrew Sullivan and Bruce Bartlett and, and David Frum and, and Connor Friedersdorf and, and, and others who, who the, the type of people who thought of themselves as kind of Burkean conservatives who, for one reason or another, got on board with this, what proved to be pretty sort of utopian in all the wrong ways project to sort of, you know, liberate Iraq and turn it into a kind of, you know, a model of, of Western democracy and liberal values in the Middle East. And, and a bunch of them kind of ended up wrestling with that mis- mistake and sort of reasserting, I think, the, that kind of old-school conservative perspective on it and moving to the left, maybe not to the left, but moving leftward from the right. Hitchens just wasn't going in that direction. And then that was, you know, part of the impetus for the book, honestly, was me wrestling with what I thought were his failures on that front because he'd been a big intellectual influence on me. I mean, he, of all of the people in the book, I mean, he's the one who I had the most, I didn't know him personally, but he's the one who I had the most personal attachment to. He was a real kind of intellectual hero right. for and, me. And, and not to be overlooked is that some of the people you mentioned, David Frum, Sullivan, Friedersdorf, a little less so, were all influenced by Hitchens. He had an influence on all of those oh, yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean he. I, I think he had an influence certainly on Sullivan. I don't know, but certainly had influence even before the the Iraq stuff. But yeah, I mean after after nine eleven and during the Iraq War, I mean Hitchens emerged as this this sort of brilliantly articulate advocate for going to war in Iraq from what felt like a left wing perspective. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I went with him part of the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I found his writing at that time really exciting. And I, and I felt moved by what I think was moving him, which was this sense of this guy who had, who had written about all of these oppressed peoples who had been the victim of, of power for so many decades. And, and he saw an opportunity for, for power to come to their rescue and to, and to be on their side. And I felt that pull and I, I went with him, at, you know, I went with him part of the way and and I think I've gone through the process I hope that I think a lot of those people I've you know I mentioned have gone through of like what were the mistakes we made and how did we go wrong and and I think yeah you're absolutely right I mean those people were all quoting Hitchens and and I'm sure you know I don't know if we had Twitter at the time but if we did they were retweeting him and liking his his articles during that that period um you know, when we were going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, kind of guns blazing, flags flying. Have we lost, in your view, some intellectual underpinning of our politics today? I have mixed, I I have really conflicted feelings on that. So 
on the one hand, when you, sometimes when I'm writing about these people and I think about kind of the intellectual ferment in the 1930s when there were all of these kind of, you know, jostling Marxist parties, you know, or, or, or if you read about, um, or the mid-century New York intellectuals. So all these high powered, you know, often Jewish brains who went to the, who went to the same dinner parties in New York and Manhattan. And it felt like there were at various times in American history, these small communities of intellectuals who really fed off of each other's energy and, and had the same cultural intellectual, um, touch points and that there was something powerful about that. Um, that said, so there's that part of it. And sometimes I'm reading about these and kind of imagining fantasizing about kind of being there and being one of them. That said, we seem to be in a pretty interesting, uh, intellectual moment, you know, right now. And I, and I think on one of your recent shows, you had, uh, two of the editors from Jacobin, which is a really interesting magazine. And there's, there's a journal, there's journals like N plus one. And so, I'm on the fence. So when I compare it to like the 1930s and the 1950s and 60s, sometimes I get envious. But then when I compare it to when I was coming of age, I was born in 1976, and you know I was coming of age you know, so in the in the 80s. I, I feel like that was a total intellectual wasteland. Like it's hard to imagine that it, it's not better and more interesting now than it was than it was in the 80s. So so I don't know. I think it's better than it than it was in recent times, but maybe not as interesting or or or, or grounded as it was in, in previous eras. Daniel Oppenheimer, his book is Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. 